Well, let me start off by introducing you, Ajay Prakash. You've been a consultant in a number of different ways. I know you've spent some time as an advisor to companies, but most notably, what might be most relevant to our listeners is the time that you spent at Bain as a consultant. And of course, since then, you've had a lot of success as an entrepreneur, including right now where you act as CEO of a company that you've founded. And I want to spend some time talking about that role, having you tell us about that journey. But let's go back. How did you get into consulting? Sure. So I actually, I joined Bain right out of college. Uh, so I was fortunate when I was in college to do a couple different internships, both in the business world. I did an internship in sales and trading at Goldman Sachs my junior winter. And then my junior summer, I did an internship at Bain. And so I was fortunate to be able to compare the two experiences as a college student. And I enjoyed the experience at Goldman, but my experience at Bain was much more enjoyable. It was much better fit for me. I felt like I was getting real hands-on business experience and, and real responsibility at a young age. And so I kind of made that clear decision to accept an offer to return to Bain after college. And so that was my first job out of college. I joined after graduating in the uh, fall of 2003 at Bain and basically was there for three years before I started moving on to the next steps, which I can jump in and talk about. But that was the first job out of college. Whenever you joined Bain, did you plan on that being your career? Are you going to stay there, make partner and be a consultant for the rest of your career? Or did you always have it in the back of your mind that you're going to put in your two or three years and then make a move outside of consulting? I don't think I knew at the time. I think what I knew was I sort of prescribed to making decisions with the data at hand. And at the time, I knew that Bain was the right place for me coming out of college. And so I kind of went in open-minded with what to expect. I mean, I knew that a lot of people would go for two or three years and then would do other things. And I think from my perspective, I sort of always had the sense of I wanted to go to business school as I looked ahead. And so I didn't know if that was two, three years at Bain, then business school, if it was Bain and then something else. But I just knew it was the right job for me out of college. Now, when I went to Bain, I loved it right away. I thought the work was great. I loved the people, the culture, the autonomy and independence you get and the level of responsibility you get, but then also just, I was learning so much all the time. And I think if I think about my journey at Bain, for me, it became clear as I kind of moved further along in the second year and into the third year that before I went to business school, I wanted to try something else. So for me, the, this, you know, what I did was I did an externship during my third year at Bain where they allow you to actually just do a job at another company as part of your third year. And I was able to get a six month externship at the NBA in New York and, you know, I'm a big sports fan. So that was really interesting. And then I also did two years in private equity at a place called Berkshire Partners in Boston. So actually, before I went to business school, I had a few different experiences. But at the time joining Bain, I don't think I knew one way or the other. I mean, I still have friends from my class who, who went from Bain to business school back to Bain and are senior partners there today. So, you know, I think I don't know that they knew that that's where they were going to stay either. But I think you kind of go in open minded and then sort of see how much of a fit it is for you at the time, but then how much of a fit it is as the job evolves and as you evolve. For your externship at the private equity firm, what type of a role did you play inside of the private equity world? I'd love to understand how the consulting toolkit fits inside of a PE shop. Yeah, well, actually, there's two different experiences. The externship was at the uh, National Basketball Association in New York. And that one was really interesting because when I was looking for an externship, it happened to be at a time when David Stern, the commissioner at that time, was trying to expand 
the NBA's reach globally. And he wanted someone to help or a team to help with the plan for NBA China and NBA India. And it turned out that the skill set that I had developed at Bain to build out a model, to forecast revenue, to work with a bunch of different teams to collect data and make sense of it, and to develop a nice presentation around NBA China and NBA India was a very good fit for what the NBA needed. And so that worked out really well for me. And then, you know, as part of that, I was able to add value and have an impact, but also, you know, get the experience of working in sports, get the experience of working at a really big company, which is very different than working at a consulting firm and kind of see what kind of a fit that was for me. With private equity, it was a pretty common path for people to go from Bain to private equity. I think the common refrain, which is something I felt was that in consulting, oftentimes you're kind of developing the strategy, you're putting in a lot of work to really become an expert and develop a story and a presentation and recommendations, but then you kind of hand them off and you don't know what happens to them. And part of what I wanted to see was what happens, because I spent a year at Bain in the private equity group, and I knew the work that we did, but I didn't quite understand how the work that we did fit into the bigger picture of getting a deal done. And my sense of private equity was, hey, you actually own the companies or you invest in them. And so you, instead of just kind of handing off recommendations, you're helping implement them. And so I kind of went into it with the idea that, hey, maybe there's a little bit more skin in the game and I get a little bit more perspective. And so when I went to Berkshire, you know, I think that all was true. Like I worked closely with portfolio companies. I worked on deals. And the toolkit I had developed in consulting was incredibly applicable, right? I mean, working with portfolio companies is effectively consulting and it's just a different role than a different relationship, but I was building models. I was helping make sense of data. I was helping make recommendations, simplify complexity at various portfolio companies. And then when you think about doing a deal, a lot of it is around thinking strategically about where is this company going? Does it have the potential to grow, you know, leveraging the ability to build a model and understand financials and fundamentals in addition to working with teams and kind of getting a sense of how strong the management team and all that is. So there's no question to me that the initial toolkit that I got in consulting, I think it's probably the best job if someone wants to be in business, probably the best job one person can get out of college because the initial toolkit and foundation you get is amazing and it's applicable to any job one will go to. And for me, it's been applicable to every job I've been to with every subsequent job. I'm just kind of building on that initial foundation. So you've been in the top tier consulting world, you've seen investment banking, you've worked in private equity, and you've also worked for a major corporation, the NBA, but you didn't pursue any of those paths, or at least you're not in working in any of those environments right now. You've started and are running your own company. Tell us about that decision to pursue the entrepreneur path. One of the consistent themes, I think, as I've made decisions in my career is I've been able to compare my next step with various experiences. So there's an adage of the best decisions are made when weighed against attractive alternatives. And for me, from a career standpoint, I've actually been able to experience different things. And the thing that I've looked at is, you know, how exciting a certain role is, a certain job is, a certain type of company is. And so early on, before I chose Bain out of college, I was able to compare directly consulting and finance. And that was really helpful for me to say, hey, you know, consulting is a better fit for me. Before I got went to business school, I was able to do consulting and within consulting, working in a private equity group, which is a lot faster, smaller projects, you become an expert quickly versus what's called the general practice where you're working with bigger companies and kind of longer projects. But I was able to compare that with 
working at the NBA, as you said, big corporation, also different industry. And then I was also able to compare that with working in private equity. And in addition, at the private equity firm I was at, they had actually started a hedge fund while I was there and I was able to do a three month rotation in the hedge fund. And so when I went to business school, when I was thinking about what do I want to do during my business school summer, I'd always sort of been interested in entrepreneurship and startups and had never really done anything because I'd been on this consulting and private equity path. And so I actually just did a summer internship at a startup called Bonobos out in New York. It was actually founded by two former consultants who had been at Bain and who were also at the same business school, uh, graduates of the same business school I was at. And I went there and I loved it. And again, if you have the luxury of comparing against attractive alternatives, like I've liked every job I've done. I've loved the people I've worked with. I love the cultures and the feeling I had working at the startup was just a different level of excitement and a different level of engagement where I sort of realized like that was actually what I wanted to do. And so I came back during my second year of business school, just focused on startups, just focused on consumer startups. Bonobos was a company doing men's pants at the time. And so I knew I liked, I enjoyed putting myself in the shoes of the consumer and thinking about how to make his or her experience better. And so all I've done since then has been really consumer focused startups. I joined a company out of business school as the first hire, the COO and the CFO did that for two or three years. And then when I transitioned out of that company, I knew I wanted to start my own thing. And so 10 years ago is when I started Rinse with a good friend from college and I've been building ever since. But the decision to do it was, again, just kind of being able to, the luxury of having multiple experiences and weighing them against each other and seeing what I was most excited about. When you started Rinse and you're building that company, what were some of the gaps in your toolkit that you recognized at that point in your career? Because I understand at that time, as you mentioned, you'd seen a lot, you'd had a lot of jobs, but as you're starting to build a company, I'm curious to know if there's anything that you realize, hey, I haven't had a chance to learn this and this is something that I'm having to figure out now or I'm having to hire someone to help with this part of the job. Well, the journey of building a company is one where you're going to quickly find out there's a lot of things you don't know and you have to run hard at either learning it for yourself or supplementing it by bringing on people who are already experts at who are better than you at it. I think for me, the key thing is that, you know, I had done startup stuff. I had done consulting. I had done private equity. I had a lot of good general experience and the foundational toolkit there of just being strategic using your judgment, thinking critically, simplifying complexity via frameworks, being organized in your thought, having a bias towards action, all that sort of stuff is very helpful when you're starting a company. But there are a lot of things you don't know. And it's not really, you just have to learn as you go. So like, I didn't know as a super basic thing, like there's so many legal agreements you have to deal with when you start a company and you're trying to understand all the moving pieces. There's so many things around fundraising that are challenging and you kind of learn how to do it. There's things around hiring and managing that you're not necessarily going to get the skill set in as a consultant or as an investor, but as an operator, it's very different when you're hands-on. And so I've been learning nonstop. I think the reality when you build a company is that, especially if you're in the role I'm in, you have to continue to scale yourself faster than the company scales because the needs, like my title has been the same for a decade, but what I've been doing and what my responsibility set is, has changed dramatically as the company has changed. And so I think it's just nonstop learning. But again, I think the foundation that I got from the previous experiences put me in a position where I'm able to learn quickly. I'm adaptable, you know, kind of unemotional about going one way or the other, but using data and thinking critically to actually make decisions. I think that sort of approach is super important. And it's something that I definitely leverage at every job I've had. Tell us a bit more about 
what Rinse does, and then I want to understand the story from early days Rinse and then how the company's changed to today. Yeah, so I mean, Rinse in its simplest form is uh, we do pickup and delivery of laundry and dry cleaning. I started the company in early 2013 with one of my best friends from college. And, you know, at the time I had transitioned out of another startup and I knew I wanted to start my own thing. And so I was looking at different trends that got me excited. And I sort of had narrowed in on two things. One was bringing technology to old school industries. And the other was around removing friction from existing customer experiences. And I was thinking about a bunch of different ideas. I didn't have that idea that was getting me really excited to make the leap. And then my co-founder, James, he actually came to me with the idea of doing something in dry cleaning and laundry. And he had grown up in dry cleaning. He was also, he had done consulting out of college. He'd gone to business school. He was working in healthcare, but he grew up in dry cleaning. He had this very unique perspective where he was thinking about his parents who were dry cleaners and how their store was empty. And he was wondering if there was a way to help them get more business and grow. And for me, all the bells kind of went off in terms of what I was looking for in terms of the trends I just mentioned, bringing technology to an old school industry, you know, making an existing customer experience better. And so we got really excited. We started talking about it. And what we did is a week later, we ran a test with 11 of our friends where we picked up their clothes, cleaned them at James's parent shop, and then delivered them back. And we got the same response from everyone, which was, oh, this is great. When are you guys coming back? And, and so we knew we were striking a chord, but we really hadn't planned beyond that test. And so for us, then we dove right into it. We started talking to as many people as we could, formal need finding interviews, informal conversations with anybody we could connect with because everybody does dry cleaning and laundry. And we just tried to understand the last time they did laundry, the last time they did dry cleaning and trying to understand the pain points. And what we heard in those conversations, it's really been the same thing we've heard for the last 10 years as we've been building Rinse. It's just that there's so much friction in the laundry and dry cleaning experience. And there's not one big point of friction, not one silver bullet to solve it. It's just a, a lot of little points of friction along the way, which we call death by a thousand cuts. But what we thought was, hey, we could actually create a seamless experience to remove the death by a thousand cuts. So it's seamless from start to finish. You're leveraging technology, making it customer centric and just creating an amazing experience for the customer while at the same time helping people like James's parents who are on the other side of it, who are really good at cleaning, who run a high quality operation, but they don't know how to acquire customers or grow their business. They don't have time to manage customers. And so we saw a really interesting opportunity to kind of help both sides and so this was in 2013. We just put a circle around three zip codes in San Francisco. And we said, hey, let's just prove it out here. And if it doesn't work here, it's not going to work anywhere. But let's prove it out. Let's figure out the operation. Let's be disciplined around what we're willing to do, knowing that this is going to be an operationally complicated business. And it's incredibly complicated. You know, I think what we've seen is that the barriers to entry are super low. Anybody can go start doing someone's laundry. But the barriers to scale are incredibly high because there's so much operational complexity that comes with managing the moving pieces around cleaning, around pickup and delivery, around tying it all together and creating a seamless experience. And so we started with just three zip codes. We started, we're kind of managing the experience via Excel and you know email and text messaging and just kind of making sure that we were taking care. The most important thing was to have a great end product and take care of the customer and deliver clean clothes on time. And then as we started doing it and getting really positive feedback, we did an early fundraise, raised some capital, and then brought on our third co-founder, Sam, who's our CTO, because one of the areas that we knew we needed to supplement was on the technical side. You know, James and I are both coming from the business side of things. And so 
we brought Sam on and then, you know, we were able to move much faster in terms of expansion and all that sort of stuff because we had early traction, we had capital, we started building the team. And so, you know, if you fast forward today, 10 years from now, happy to talk about how it's evolved because it's evolved a lot of ways, but the goal is to be a household name and a national brand. And so today we are in not only all over the Bay Area, San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose and surrounding areas, but we're in LA, Washington, DC, Chicago, Boston, New York, Austin, Dallas, and Seattle, and hopefully continuing to expand our footprint uh, across the country. Over the past 10 years and through the growth of the business, is there one or two points in that journey that really helped accelerate the growth or cause you to pivot in some way? Certainly there are points. I would say every day you're learning something new. And the key is we take a very strong customer development approach where, you know, we're we're going to map out what we think the right answer is, but then we're going to test it and we're going to iterate based on feedback. And so early on, I think for us, it was all about figuring out the operational complexity. There were other companies in the space that had come in and they're really focused on kind of being very flashy, great mobile app, a lot of PR. And we were not that. We were very focused on the back end piece because we knew that it was going to be operationally very challenging. The other thing to understand when you think about when we launched is that this was 2013 when the world was moving pretty quickly to everything being on demand. So Uber and Lyft had started to emerge. There was on-demand for everything, on-demand car washes, house cleaning, grocery shopping, storage, laundry and dry cleaning. You know, So when we started, there were a lot of smart people telling us we needed to be on-demand. And all of the customers we spoke with, when you listen to their story, none of them had talked about needing on-demand. They really talked about needing something that would work behind the scenes and be convenient. And so for us, we actually started only offering Sunday, Wednesday service and 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. delivery. And we focused on nailing the operations. And as we scaled and evolved, you know, we added more days of service. So in addition to Sunday, Wednesday, maybe we added Monday, Thursday, then Tuesday, Friday. And today we're seven days a week. We've actually still held on to 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. We only deliver between those two hour windows because it is operationally complicated. And we want to make sure that we're actually executing at a high level. And so you don't want to necessarily be a 24-7 type service or try to be all things to all people because it's hard and you're never going to get route density with a service like ours on like a Tuesday at 3 p.m. So we made some good decisions early on that have stuck for 10 years. And then other things we've iterated based on feedback, whether it's adding more days of service, whether it's the actual service experience, we've certainly iterated on the technology. In terms of kind of big moments or pivots, it's hard to point to any one thing. I mean, I think along the way we've raised capital. Raising capital is a great way to kind of force yourself to look hard at the business and how you're building it and make sure you really understand the data and understand the numbers. And if there are things that aren't working, you got to make them work. So as one example, if you think about building a business where the economics work, you know, when we started, we were free delivery. We offered free delivery and I was actually quite against charging for delivery early on. And as we've evolved over time, we've seen that we should charge for delivery. We need to, to make the economics work and our customers are okay with it. When we started, you know, along those lines, I think there was a a general answer I would give about who our customer is. is I said it was anybody who had a smartphone and wore clothes, which is basically everybody. But I think as we've evolved, we've learned that it's really people who are willing to pay for convenience. What we're offering is a premium service where we're picking up and delivering at your door. We're providing technology and transparency and everything's itemized and you get pictures of your clothes and all all this other stuff that, that we do. And so it's okay to charge more. Certainly, learnings like that along the way have helped us identify 
who the customer is, how do we make the business work? And then there've been other things along the way that have tested the team, tested our resilience, tested our ability to adapt. One of our core values is to embrace change and ambiguity. And we've seen a lot of different examples along the way. Probably the most pronounced one is March, 2020, when we were marching along and things were going really well, COVID hit and all of a sudden people stopped dry cleaning for a couple of years. And so, you know, the team had to be resilient, had to navigate that, but we'd already done a lot of work to put the business in a good position. There are countless examples over the decade of how we've had to evolve. I sort of view it again, as we're always making decisions based on the data in front of us. We want to get customer feedback. We want to look at the numbers. We want to see what's working, what's not, and always be testing and iterating. So there are certain things that are exactly the same from when we started 10 years ago in terms of what the customer experience is and what the company looks like and what we envision. And there are certain things that are very, very different. The vision of being a household name and a national brand is the same. That's something that we've looked at kind of the same way for 10 years, but it's never really a straight line. It ebbs and flows. And we've certainly had our ups and downs along the way. Jay, whenever you talk about the ideas in the beginning of the company, you mentioned that it was your co-founder's family that you were looking to help. You noticed some pain points in their business, but it sounds like your end customer is actually folks like me who have some dry cleaning that need to be done. And you charge us the fee rather than the dry cleaners. Tell us how you made the decision about to charge and have the individual people as your customers rather than act as a vendor for dry cleaning and laundry facilities. Well, for us, it's been a consumer-facing business since the beginning where the end consumer is someone like you, and we want to make sure we're creating an amazing experience. Ultimately, without that, it's hard to build a business that makes sense. But as we put the pieces in place and as we've really built Rinse over the last 10 years, there are multiple parties involved that we're trying to create a win-win for, right? So the customer is the North Star. The customer is very important. And so certainly making sure that you're really happy with the product, you're saving three hours a week, this is making your life better is really important. We do work with cleaning partners in each of our markets. So we want to leverage the existing infrastructure. And for us, we want them to feel like this is a winning relationship. So they need to be growing because they work with Rinse. And I think that is the key value proposition we offer is that the majority of cleaners out there don't know how to find customers They have a lot of excess capacity. What we do when we partner with cleaning partners is the first thing we'll do is we'll fill their excess capacity because we can send a predictable stream of volume from our customer base in that market. But then we also work with them to help them grow their business, whether it's adding more shifts in a day or adding more days in the week. So there's actually significant opportunity for growth. And because of that, we've been able to have very long-standing relationships with our cleaning partners. You know, when we launch a market, we have some that have been with us since the day we launched a market because they're making more money and it's actually more enjoyable for them where they don't have to deal with customers that come in the door as much as they deal with rinse and we deal with getting the volume and we manage customer service. And then we also have a third part of the equation, which is our valets. We do pickup and delivery. And one of the decisions we made since day one was to W2 our valets. They're all employees of rinse. And this was at a time when it was very obvious to every startup that you had to make them 1099 contractors, which is what Uber and Lyft did. And for us, it, we didn't think that was a good decision. We thought it was a better idea to make the valet's employees, to train them, to have them be part of the team. If everything goes according to plan for you as a customer, then the only person you really should ever see is your valet. And so the valet was effectively replacing the counter person, was the face of the brand. And so we wanted to make sure that person felt like they were part of the team and they were treated as part of the team. And so that's something we've done since the beginning. 
to create a win-win for the valet as well. And it's worked out great because we have some valets that have stayed with us for several years. We have a few of our team members say that our managers or above has started as a valet and then became, you know, they grew into managerial roles in different areas like customer care or a city operations manager or things like that. So I think as we've been building, you know, it's not just obviously the end consumers where we're going to get the dollars from, the revenue from, but we need to make sure that everybody who's part of this journey and part of the operation has a win-win created for them as well. And so we're certainly managing all of those pieces to build rinse and to scale it. Have you hired any former management consultants into rinse? Absolutely. I, it's, a, it's an amazing skill set. I'm a huge proponent of the skill set. As I said, I'm obviously a former management consultant. My co-founder is a former consultant. And you know we actually still have a very close relationship with Bain. And so Bain has programs where they'll have externs, like I was an extern at the NBA, but externs who are looking for six months or so of experience at a company different than consulting. There's programs during business school summers, they call them, and there's people who've committed to going back to Bain who are looking for a different experience in the summer. Actually, right now we have two people who fit that mold at Rinse this summer. And then they also, I think Bain and McKinsey and BCG all pushed their start dates back recently. And so Bain has created a program where they're kind of introducing people whose start dates got pushed back to companies that are what they call, you know, friends of Bain. But we're on that list and we actually brought on three or four people to help push things forward. I have a lot of respect for the skill set around critical thinking, being able to work with data, being able to derive insights from data. And it's certainly a skill set that is valuable for us and valuable for any company out there. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Ajay, thanks so much for spending some time with us and telling the story of your consulting days and the growth of Rinse. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 